Welcome to Cyber Context, the podcast featuring Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian White. Jonathan, we're coming up on three and a half months of war in Ukraine. Uh, it was mid-February when Russia invaded Ukraine, and a lot of people thought it was going to end quickly. It first started to look like Russia was going to win very quickly. And then um, with this demonstration of resolve by the Ukrainians that they may prevail and turn the tide, and they seem to have done that around Kiev, the capital, Kiev, uh, and pushed back the Russians who've, um, however, regrouped and are, are now pushing out from Donbass. They have their coveted land bridge um, to the Crimea uh, across the north of the Sea of Azov. They have control of that entire sea and um, are picking up territory. But of course, a big part of this war, at least uh, capabilities-wise, if not headlines-wise, has been cyber war. Uh, what do you make so far about what we know, what's worked and what hasn't worked for, for both Ukraine and for Russia in the cyber realm of the war? Well, I think the, the first point that I think is really clear is that there is no cyber war, there's just war. And that, you know, the, that, that cyber is just another part of the joint operations that any war is going to conduct. And I think we've seen that's that's really very clear from this. I think a lot of the pundits and and cyber policy people wanted to think of cyber war as a separate thing from conventional war, uh, and certainly cyber as a tool during times of peace is quite distinct in the way that it can be used in all sorts of ways that don't reach the level of armed conflict. Um, and so I think it is a distinct tool in sort of the nation state quiver. But when it comes to war, there's just war. Um, and I, I think what's been surprising um, is the fact that um, the Russian cyber capabilities deployed have actually, as far as you know, I can see from the perspective that information I have, have been quite restrained and militarily appropriate. You know, we aren't seeing this like cyber Armageddon that people warned of where against the West or internally in the Ukraine that Russia just tries to destroy everything from a cyber standpoint, take everything out. They're using, they're not, they, they've kind of apparently learned their wet lesson with no pedia and they're not, uh, they don't have a wormed one. They're compromising hosts by other means and then dropping custom malware to deny capabilities on the hosts they, they compromise. And it's, you know, they operate, you know, they, they've deployed six or seven or more wipers now that are unique. So they're definitely deploying a lot of capabilities in the Ukraine. Uh, and I believe they're being effective in reducing the Ukrainians, the, the ease at which the Ukrainian government can govern and organize. Um, but at the same time, we also haven't seen like the total, total, total cyber dominance. Like there's definitely been hacking campaigns, the Viasat campaign you know, meant to deny comms, military and government comms. And yet the military and government in the Ukraine clearly has effective comms, right? They're able to, you know, organize their troops and communicate both, you know, the, the government to the Western world and the world overall. And, you know, from their, their command posts out through their troops to be effective fighters. So I think it's both, it's, it's interesting both in what, you know, how we were wrong, right? How the, 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 the 
cyber policy people, the pundits were very wrong at what they thought cyber war was going to be, how we were wrong about what it was going to look like. But then, and then how Russia has disintegrated as as thing. And, and what generally is believed to be happening from the sources I listen to is that we're seeing GR, you know, we're seeing the, the military aspects, not the, you know, not the spies performing these actions, not sort of the special operations that, that are used, influence operations. It's military people hacking military targets for military effects. Um, but then again, like I said, it's also been where it's clearly something they're doing. It has been not been able to, they have not had the dominance that we thought, which is both potentially, it's potentially due to the complexity of actually achieving that kind of dom dominance in the very complex domain that cyber is. Um, because it's not a thing, right? It's many networks, many technologies, and also the very hard work of the Ukrainians to defend their networks and keep comms running. Right. But that's interested me as well. Uh, and we see this uh, not at the uh, uh, electronic level, but more broadly, why Russia, for example, hasn't resorted to area bombing. I mean, they have bear bombers, those giant uh, old but still capable um, planes, propeller driven. And they have uh, newer, like the knockoff of the B-1 bomber, which I think is a blackjack. They still fly. Uh, you know, why Russia actually sort of took its time, for example, to oust or to induce the surrender of defenders of Mariupol rather than just firing up a few flights of bombers and turning it just in leveling, leveling anything. Uh, and well, so I, you're, you are I left they, to wonder. I think they did level Mariupol. Um, it's just that a lot, yeah. the defenders retreated to this large facility that was sort of naturally hard by having so much underground, you know, I mean, you look at the right. pictures of what's left. There's not a lot not much left, left there. Yeah, it's going to be hard to fire um, that thing up. But okay, but if you say Ukraine, or excuse me, Kiev, for example, the capital, now maybe it's because of air defenses that they actually don't want to put yeah. those assets I, at risk, similarly with, yeah. you know, the cyber thing. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I'm not, this is way outside of any domain I have expertise in, but it does appear to be from the news, right, and the reports that the Ukrainian air defense, well, I mean, what well, we know, like, Ukraine is still flying aircraft. Right. right. The you know, Russia has not achieved air dominance in the Ukraine. And I can't imagine that's not for trying. So I think they <laughs> haven't been able to use those, those types of weaponry for fear of loss. But uh, I'm not really sure. Right. Can you walk us through? So it, in the early days of the war, it seemed like Russia was trying to do its version of shock and awe. Uh, which the United States employed against Saddam Hussein in 2003 in Iraq. So su such a shocking blitzkrieg-like uh, military assault that it stuns the opposition, creates political chaos, hopefully induces a rapid surrender so you don't really have to expend a lot of your men and materiel. Didn't work. Um, and, and it was... It was unlike the Russian way of war because in, instead of relying on concentrated forces and heavy artillery, it was diffused, dispersed. On the other hand, it was very much like the Russian way of war at the beginning of almost every war in that it was grotesquely incompetent. If you look at the early days of World War I and World War II, uh, I mean, Russia <laughs> sort of lost every battle except for the last one, which incidentally is the most important. But with this new uh, approach, which is very customarily Russian, I gather, which is to slowly blister out, slowly bulge out, 
uh, using mass forces that can support each other and relying heavily on artillery, which is sort of old fashioned. You know, the Marines are about to give up their artillery in, in part of their reformation plan. But um, now you say that the cyber influence and the cyber attack has been military people hacking military targets in that sort of old fashioned mass troops, mass artillery. Um, so what are we talking about there? Are we talking about uh, wipers and other malware that's targeting the enemies? In this case, it would be the Russians' enemies, the Ukrainians, targeting their communications or targeting their command and control, which I guess is somewhat synonymous with... with yeah, I mean, can you sort I of talk we'll, us through the practical application? I mean, what we see. So, well, first, we know very little, right? There are no... Ukraine is not releasing forensic reports of their analysis of Russian breaches, Right. We are getting only, you know, sort of the what we can pick up on the sidelines. Um, and, you know, certainly a lot of the cyber attacks are followed by kinetic attacks. And you can't learn a lot from, you know, a computer that's been bombed. Um, but the what we are learning about, what we are seeing is these malware samples. And time and time again, it's brand new, unique, you know, largely, pro you know, would assume one would assume to be designed to be not detected by existing um, signatures, um, malware that's meant to wipe IT systems. You know, they, they've used similar approaches in the Vias attack. They essentially installed wiper malware on the terminals because they were running Linux systems and they figured out how to deploy software to them. You know, uh, and in some ways, I don't know, maybe it's not unlike artillery, right? I mean, you pick a target, you you've you get on target by compromising it, and then you damage that target, right? I, I, I don't know. I'm not my area. Probably shouldn't try and step <laughs> in and make those analogies. But you know, it, it's they, they are targeting, compromising, and then deploying constrained malware to disable those systems. So these are IT systems. These are, uh, you know, they like, we do know they have had interest in the comms because of the the Viasat thing. But it seems that their their goal has been to disrupt the ability of their enemy to coordinate against them. So any um, IT systems, anything that has a database, basically, uh, not just the communications or, or, part, or, or somebody's laptop supplies. or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it seems to be anything that is used for the their, the ability to coordinate defense Interesting. Uh, against them, both at the civilian and uh, military level. You know. Uh, it it has not been, from what I know, and again, my knowledge is very limited. Um, uh, just limited to what's in the public reports and and things and and rumors and chatter. Um, but it has not been like just shut down the power plants, turn off. You know, it, it, it hasn't been targeted at, at deeply targeted effects against civilians and the entire you know infrastructure. Um, not to say that none of that has happened. Um, so I, I think that right. that is it's it's not it's not exciting, which I think is why so many people are disappointed. <laughs> they wanted cyber war to be exciting, right? Yeah, yeah. Watching a damn burst somehow would would definitely crank the ratings. Cable news would love that, but um, you know, someone's laptop failing. Well, well, and also, also, and also for everyone who's made their career predicting the risk of cyber war, the risks of cyber. You know, like just as, as if if you've spent the last 15 years, you know, ringing the bell of the dangers of cyber. Right. And it turns out that it's boring, like. <laughs> War is boring. It's sort of like doing, EMP. You know, right? that, you know, 
there's a little cottage industry yeah. of people who've been warning about EMP attacks um, uh, as a result of setting off a nuke in, in um, I guess, the yeah. upper atmosphere or in the near stra- space. Like the stratospheric, stratospheric nukes for EMP attacks. Right. And I guess one of the last atmospheric attacks uh, test performed by the United States before the limited test ban treaty was um, in either just the lower what you would consider space or upper of what you would consider the atmosphere. And it knocked out radio and TV in Honolulu, even though that was thousands of miles away, a thousand miles away, something like that. But it always struck me that if, <laughs> if you're going to nuclear war, uh, you might want to worry about the nuke that's being used on you uh, more than the nuke that's being used uh, above you. Uh, far above you because you know it's 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 probably you're probably not worried too much about your semi your uh, computer chips your semiconductors at that point anyway that's a, that's a digression well I mean, with, I mean it, it is an interesting point like if I'm going to move to nuclear war I'm just going to disable your electrical system <laughs> yeah right I mean I I'm it's it's like you know I mean it's like the whole it's like the whole the the, the whole problem with defending yourself with a gun, right? If somebody threatens to punch you and you pull out a gun, you've raised this to now mortal conflict. When maybe before, all they want to do is knock you to the ground. Now they're defending their life. You know, if you're 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 doing that, if you lunk a nuke to the stratosphere, how does the the other side not think that maybe the ones for the land are coming next and they better launch theirs? Right. Well, that's that's why you have to carry pepper spray with your gun in case it's a you know non-lethal situation. Right. <laughs> Start um, with the pepper spray, escalate to the side. <laughs> yeah. Or you can run away, you know. Um with uh, you know, the, I think a lot of the pundits early on, and who knows, maybe this is still right. I'm curious what you think. Early on in the war, because there weren't spectacular cyber attacks on either side, said, oh, you know, in the same way we may have overestimated um, Russia's traditional military, its armor, its aviation, its missiles, etc. Maybe we did so with cyber. And what this really means is that China is is really the, the chief cyber enemy and its capabilities must vastly exceed the Russians. But um, it sounds like what you're saying is we we may not be able to draw that inference from what we've seen so far. Well, and I I've, something that I really believe is that I think there's a great possibility that it is not um, that we underestimated Russia's um, capabilities is that we assumed that their capabilities would look like ours, and I think that 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 very much might be incorrect because if you look at the kind of capabilities they're deploying they are capabilities that we, I mean, you have to develop them strategically but then have a high tactical value and a high return on investment or if you look at the you know shock and awe kind of capabilities that the us has developed right because we have right if the reports about what happened at the last minute pullout of bombing of iran during trump's presidency where we mm-hmm. switched to all cyber attack and we completely disabled their air defense systems for days or weeks, right? That's incredible, right? But to do that, you have to have infiltrated and understood and developed implants for the Iranian air defense system months or years ahead of time. So for every target, you know, you know, friend of the moment or enemy of today, you have to invest in, you know, custom work to be ready to do that for everywhere you might care about. And you're probably never going to invade most of those places 
uh, or perform an action in most of those environments before that system is end of life and something replaces it. So to have that kind of capability, the kind of capability that we seem to have demonstrated um, in a few different environments and, and similar to, to what Stuxnet was and, and Flame and the Iranian air defense system is a incredibly low efficiency strategic investment because one where most of the investment will never be deployed. Where if you look at the kind of things that Russia keeps doing, it's all either on, you know, sort of investment on target that they actively want to compromise or investment in things like these wipers, which are very generic and can be deployed in a lot of different ways. And so I think in some ways it's more about the way that resources are being choose, choosing to be spent rather than the capability of those people developing those resources. So I don't think we can even say, oh, Russia could not do X. It's more they're choosing not to do X is the thing that we can certainly say. Until we see them attempt to do something and fail, I think it would be unwise to believe they cannot do something and that we should be more considering about what they're choosing to invest in rather than what they're capable of investing in. Mm -hmm. uh, going from, if I could, uh, uh, this is maybe a remedial question, going from, from macro to micro with the wipers, say that that's targeting some IT system or an individual laptop, desktop. Um, are these things that have been uh, in place previously by the Russians and just lying and are ready to use? Or do you get the sense these have been developed over the course of the war in the last, um, you know, three and a half I, months? Of I don't have any sense for how long. Well, okay. Well, I can say I don't have a sense for when they might have developed these, but I can give you a sense for, you know, how long it takes to develop, right? These are definitely things that given the diversity of what they're doing, that, you know, just from someone with an experience in software development, it probably takes months to develop each of these capabilities. You know, it, it, I mean, it maybe it is as short as weeks, but if you want a reliable piece of software that has complex behavior, you're looking at months time span. Um, you know, maybe these are, I have not seen them uh, myself. Maybe these are unreliable pieces of software with low capability, and maybe those can be, you know, developed in weeks, and those have been developed since the beginning of the conflict. But there's there's no reason to think they didn't develop them ahead of time. And I think a really key thing to realize is like, well, look, I mean, this is not saying that these are at, at this level of complexity. You know, is that you know a complex piece of software like a simple user and end user application costs millions of dollars to develop, like say like three to five million dollars to develop. But at the same time, that's the cost of a lot of ordnance, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, Tomahawk missiles <laughs> like thirty million. Especially if it's made in the United States, yeah. <laughs> right. So I think, and, and the cost, of, and I'm giving U.S. dollar cost to develop domestically. So I, these are, but but when you look at like, so okay, so we have a one-time use of a a you know cyber weapon that costs three million dollars to build. Well, that's cheaper than a cruise missile. Right, right. Good point. Um, well, it'll be interesting to see if uh, now that they're we're entering a period of time where there's been enough duration that you could have developed software. Um, who knows? Maybe yeah. the capabilities will be even more impressive as as time goes by. You know, uh, shift, shifting gears a little. I, I would say I think. Hmm, Good. 
That's all gone. I was just saying, shifting gears a little, another story that's come out of the Ukraine war is uh, looming food shortages. Um, you know, this could be driven by other factors rather than just taking wheat supply that you would have come from Ukraine and is no longer on the world market. When you have oil at 120 bucks a barrel, 115 a barrel, that raises the cost of farming everywhere. I, I guess it raises the cost of, of mining. Is it phosphate that gets used in fertilizer and things like that? Um, but aside from those just sort of supply, well, actually, you know, related to those supply constraints, uh, has the war taught us anything about the nexus of, of cyber and, and farming? Uh, you know, I don't know if the war has explicitly taught us something, but I, th I think there is a topic there. Because I think, you know, to drive yields that we're seeing from modern farms depends inherently on cyber. Precision agriculture depends on drones or satellite imagery. Uh, you know, it's incredibly important during the growing season to know what parts of your crops are unhealthy and where they need, where you need to deal with weeds, where you need fertilizer. And, you know, then that's all processed through a, you know, pipeline that processes data. And then you get these giant fertilizer machines that are like, I don't know, 100 meters wide or something. That might be exaggerating. Um, the, the biggest you know, tractor I have is, is, is a few feet wide. So I, and battery powered, sure. right? No, yeah. And battery powered. Very yeah, impressive. But, uh, but you know, these things, they can, they can, these modern equipment, you, you, you rent a piece of fertilizer equipment, precision fertilizer from a company and they provide, they collect the data, produce the analysis and program the thing. And you just pull it behind you and it can fertilize an area with precision of like one square meter. So, you know, we're getting these, these, the farming is no longer disjoint from the cyber domain and it includes the space domain, it includes, you know, traditional IT and data processing and analytics and IOT and automation has gotten everywhere in society. And I think that, you know, as we see, you know, increasing demands on our food supplies through, uh, climate change or drought or population growth or, you know, switches in demand or war that we're going to see an increasing dependency on automation and computation and cyber in our food supply chain from the, the very beginning, from literally how the seeds get into the ground to how they're delivered on your table. Um, you know, so, so I think that, but this is not to say, I think that cyber is something different. I think in the same way that nobody goes online anymore, that connectivity <laughs> has been normalized, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, nobody goes online anymore. You're just online. Connectivity is part of everyday life. I think that automation and information and data science is becoming the same way that, you know, you don't think about an electrified factory versus a steam-powered factory or a manual factory. Just everything has electricity. Everything is connected to the internet. Everything is based on information. And that the there's no, there is, we have or are about to cross the tipping point where you can't really think about society without thinking about information systems. So, yeah. It'll be fun Cyber to... Uh, is to, relevant. To, 
to get someone just out of college and hand them an AOL disc that says 90 free hours and ask them what it is and what it means, see if they could, uh, <laughs> they could explain. They probably could. Well, you know, it's not that old. I, I just saw a picture of somebody um, taking a picture of their ice cream cone, wearing a mask, using it with their phone cam. And the, the caption was, show this, this, go back in time and show this to somebody in 1995 and ask them <laughs> what was happening here. Right. And I think, and, and right, they would be baffled, right? What is that person holding? Is it a, a mirror, right? Like, <laughs> like you know, point. I was a technologist in 1995. I had in, what, 1997, by then, I had like a Palm Pilot professional with a wireless modem, and I was able to like browse the web, walk through the field, but I still wouldn't have known what that was, right? Because it's so many further steps refused to that, even though I, at that time, was was ahead of the field. You know, and it's changed so much, you know, and I think that's that's the struggle, right? Now, I think I've said before, maybe maybe on this podcast or not, that I think one of the, I think, most interesting implications of cyber is I think it will always be partially ungovernable and not because, you know, the criminals or the hackers will, will keep a step ahead uh, of the, the law or whatever. It's because it's moving so fast that it's changing faster than our ability to govern, right? The, the physics of the sea don't change. We are able to get control of the oceans and bring, you know, you know civil, enforce civil society on the high seas, right? I mean, there's still some pirates around Somalia, but they're the exception. And there's, mm -hmm. there's not a lot of points, ports that pirates could go to after what, like 1875 or wherever it was. I'm kind of making up that date, but it's not entirely wrong. Um, you know, but it's on the internet, it's as if what boats can float changes each year and how, and what a port looks like changes each year. And I think that, that that's sort of interesting when, when we both say, well, we can no longer separate out the information sphere from regular life. And the information sphere changes faster than our ability to, you know, form treaties and create laws and legislate and create policies. That's sort of an interesting thing. We've just said, if, I've, if we do believe that the internet will never be completely governable because of the rate of change, we've said that society will never be governable because of the rate of change if information really is integrated into society. Uh yeah, it's true. I always root for a little bit of lawlessness. Not that I partake in it, but it's sort of nice to know that something is beyond the total control of authority. Uh, you know, you see these things, and we've just seen it um, this week. And I wouldn't even call it a trade agreement, although it came from trade officials. But you know, we're going to talk to Taiwan, for example, about digital this, that, and the other. <sighs> And digital trade, I guess. And you just see, it can envision bureaucrats from the foreign ministry and the trade ministry sitting down with our State Department and USTR. Maybe there'll be someone there from the Commerce Department. And the idea that these people really know what's going on today with digital architecture broadly defined and where this is going five, 10 years from now and how to craft policy that's pertinent, its it seems pretty far-fetched. It does. I mean... Almost, you know, the only people that understand what's happening today are the people who are doing it, are building it. And even they don't, right? You know, even with the own soft, our, our, the software Spider Oak writes and some of the fundamental innovations we've made, you know, I don't understand them until years after we've built it. Like, I don't know what it means, 
Like, I know what we set out to do, and I know mechanically what we built, but the implications of what we built and realized that, that you know, I thought I was making a frying pan or whatever, but in fact, I made something totally different that just happened to also fry, you know, is, <laughs> right. is it takes a long time. And then the idea that, that anybody who thinks they know what's going to happen 10, 5, 10, 15 years from now in technology is clearly kidding themselves because we have absolutely no idea. Like nobody right. knows. We're, we we're that wrong. That's... We're more wrong. We're, we're, we do worse than, than even odds at our best, right? That's because, I mean, you can look at it. You can go all the way back to Tomorrowland at, at uh, Epcot World or whatever, that everybody's vision of the future but more so, right? right? When in fact, the innovations of tomorrow are things we never even considered today. Right. I guess Jules Verne's got a lot right. But other than that, futurists have a pretty, pretty <laughs> tricky time. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, I read not that long ago, I read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and it was fascinating. Well, one, there's an awful lot of pages devoted to describing the fish that are going by outside. <laughs> but what's really fascinating, though, actually, about it is how anachronistic the, the futuristic technology was. Like, the two things that it went on about as, as sort of science fiction, hard science fiction, were one, hydraulic pressure, right? That was a novel concept to Jules Verne, right? And the other is electric motors and batteries. Those are the big technology in that book. <laughs> yeah, just coming out of the steam age. I guess that would have, that would have, that was the new, new thing. And, you know, from a business perspective, who knew that uh, you know, Netscape would be out of business and we'd still be using Microsoft Office all these decades later. That's probably all the time we have for this episode of Cyber Context. If you like us, please follow us, subscribe, recommend us to a friend, and we'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks.